Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here we go. Time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I have a lot to talk about with this excellent panel uh, today. So let me get right to introducing everybody. Uh, Kevin Riley, the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is my Thursday partner on the show, and I'm glad you're here today, Kevin. Thanks for being with us. Well, it's good to be here, Bill, and I just want you to know that if you say anything on the show today that I either disagree with or think is inaccurate, I will not yell liar into the microphone. We will work out our differences (laughs) civilly. Well, thank you very much for that display of decorum or that possible display of of decorum, Kevin. Um, Jim Galloway is uh, with us on Thursdays, usually here on Friday, but Jim, we're uh, delighted to have you today, former a political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How are you? I'm doing fine. And and just to carry, carry carry this topic a little bit further, I will note Kevin Riley is not wearing a fur collar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Representative Michelle Au is back with us. Um, we're so glad that you could join us today. Um, uh, Michelle is an anesthesiologist. Uh, she has a master's in public health show. So she's really been uh, uh, up to speed on everything we've dealt with with COVID for the last three years. But Michelle, I didn't realize until today when I was looking over your bio that you and our senior producer, Natalie Mendenhall, share something very important in common. You are both graduates of Wellesley College. Ah, <laughs> uh, Yes. I love to meet another Wellesley woman, but yes, um, I'm happy to hear that Natalie also went to Wellesley, and I'm so happy to join you again here today, Bill, with this really prolific and august panel. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, sure. And uh, we're really glad to welcome back for the first time in a while, Cody Hall. And Cody, I saved you for last for a variety of reasons that we'll get into. Number one, uh, you are the former communications director uh, for Governor Kemp. You served in that capacity for Uh, most of the first term until you went off to work on the campaign. You have since left the governor's office and uh, uh, begun as you're a partner and a founder of Full Focus Communications, your new consulting firm. But, Cody, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the show, also today we're adding one more job description. You're the executive director, newly named, uh, to uh, Governor Kemp's new National PAC, which rolled out a new website literally overnight, uh, hardworking Americans. And Cody, one more point, and then I'll <laughs> let you jump in. Uh, all of this is happening while you and the governor are up in Washington for uh, the RGA, Republican, Republican Governors Association meetings. So it's probably not coincidental that the rollout of this website happens at the same time that all the Republican governors are together. Yes. We try to time those things up when it works. Um, But no, I'm excited to be here, Bill. Thank you. Uh, In a little while, I want to talk about what it means that Governor Kemp is really muscling up with this national uh, pack. But I I want to start uh, with this. Uh, Yesterday on the show, uh, those of you who are listening will recall that at the beginning of the show yesterday, I said that after watching the State of the Union address and the raucous reception it got from Republicans, I felt like I was watching uh, prime minister questions in the English parliament where they get very heated and animated in the way they go after their prime minister. But uh, there is something to that. But I want to read to you a, a little bit from a column that was written by Duncan Maven for the Washington Post this morning. He's a senior assignment editor. He's British. And here's what he says about all this. He says, in Britain's raucous House of Commons, there is one four-letter word that is strictly off limits, liar. So when Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene yelled out that expletive at President Biden, the word was repugnant. 
to my delicate British ears, while gesticulating and hoo-hawing seemed so unbecoming stateside, we in Britain thought you'd ironed out that sort of behavior a couple of hundred years ago, even if a Republican was censured for yelling, you lie, during President Obama's 2009 address. Over here, of course, we're used to our politicians acting out a scene from an 18th century gin house, and yet a line in the parliamentary sand was crossed in the U.S. House on Tuesday night, a taboo broken, a word uttered that is so vile, even British politicians aren't supposed to say it out loud. Idiot? Fine. Dimwit? Dunce? Those are above board. But Kevin Riley, uh, Duncan Maven says, never liar. Kevin? Well, I I think that's an interesting take for sure. And um, we have that same policy on the show, right, Bill, as as I've just instituted in my introduction. So, yeah, uh, we now listen, we've always been a show about cordial conversation among people who may disagree uh, politically. I, I'm not looking to get into a long conversation about this, but I thought it was interesting to see a Brit talking about the uh, use of the word liar in uh, in uh, Congress. Um, let's talk, Jim Galloway, about some legislative measures that are now popping in the uh, House and Senate. Uh, we are seeing that once again, and we didn't, uh, we weren't surprised that it was going to come up, a, a bill introduced that would uh, create the city of Buckhead. Uh, not sure it has much uh, legs this time, but there it is, Jim. Yeah, and, and it uh, it includes some extraordinary salary levels for uh, both the mayor and 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 uh, the, any 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 future uh, members of the city council uh, that would I, I think they would put uh, they they would they they would put a blush on the uh, on on the sal on the seventeen thousand dollars plus per diem that state legislators get and and far more he would uh, the, the the mayor would be paid far more than 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 the governor of our state and so I, you kind of wonder why that was why that was done whether it was to persuade maybe a couple lawmakers that uh, that they might they might uh, 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 run for this post run for these posts I don't know but I, but I will tell you the same questions that that have applied in the past still apply uh, there's no explanation of what to do I don't believe there's any explanation of what to do uh, with education uh, as far as the the uh, the uh, uh, whether these students would go to Fulton County or the AP or or the Atlanta school system, uh, and and there's nothing, no explanation of of how you handle the finances uh, that it would impact the city of Atlanta. Yeah, Cody, I want to bring you in here. That they want to pay the mayor under uh, Randy Robertson's uh, bill, and we'll talk about him in a minute. Two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. A year, and they want to pay their part-time city council members seventy-two thousand dollars a year. What what is the governor's salary these days, Cody? I don't know it off the top of my head. You may. It is set in statute at one hundred seventy-five thousand um, dollars. But yeah, <laughs> so, I, I agree with Jim. Um, I don't. I can't remember an issue that has been um, addressed or pushed in a more um, haphazard way than the Buckhead City movement. Um, and I'm someone who, um, because of my occupation, has to pay attention to these public debates. And I don't think that they've answered to anyone's, um, or they have not answered fully really any of the questions that Jim just laid out, education, taxes, bonds, like they have addressed none of those. Um, and I think my concern or my question really looking at it is a lot of the legislators that are now pushing this on the Republican side say, well, we believe that the people of Buckhead should be able to vote on this issue. Well, the people of Buckhead have representatives in the state house and the state Senate, and none of those folks are on the bill. Um, so I think whenever you make an argument about people being able to elect their way out of a city, um, you have to have buy-in from the local elected leadership or it's not going to go anywhere. Michelle, you want to jump in? Yeah, I want to piggyback on Cody's point, which is an excellent one, which is that uh, the people who are advancing this bill actually do not represent either of the municipalities that are affected by the bill itself. And I just want to note that uh, I was in the Senate uh, State and Local Government Organization 
committee uh, last term, which we affectionately call SLOGO. And when this bill came up before us, you know, that's supposed to be really quite a sleepy committee. I was told, you know, they're like, they put you on that because you're a first year in the minority party. And it's really sort of a, a little bit of a rubber stamp committee in that we defer to the local delegations in deciding uh, what legislation that they would like to pass. And we don't try to meddle in local matters. So I found it, first of all, um, fairly surprising that this measure that would affect uh a new municipality or prospective municipality was not being advanced by members of that delegation. And secondly, that it was uh, an, an idea devoid of solutions, right? That they they had these concepts that they were trying to advance, but they had no concrete solutions for how the formation of the city would actually address or solve these problems. So I'm you know, a little bit dismayed to see this come back, but I do think it's a much weaker proposition at this point, especially after last year. So we'll see how that goes. Bill, uh, like Cody, because of my job, I, I I need to follow this stuff, and and we need to ask the kinds of questions that that are being asked. But I will point out something. I just kind of did this for fun in preparation for the show. So you've mentioned uh, Senator Randy Robertson is is uh, the sponsor of the bill, and um, we debated a little bit the pronunciation here, but I think we have it right from Catula, Georgia, which is down near Columbus, not far from the Alabama line. And uh, I did. I just put it into Google Maps. Buckhead is more than 100 miles away from there, and it's over a two-hour drive. And so you really have to wonder, like, what's your interest in this? How much sense does this make? And uh, whether this is really serious or just an attempt to get under some people's skin or just maybe to keep this alive, hoping that the, its moment will come. Cody? And I think, look, we... You also have to separate the Buckhead City movement from the real conversation that needs to happen about public safety in the city of Atlanta. Um, in my opinion, the way to address that conversation is bringing all the right people around the same table to talk about how do you make the streets of Atlanta, the streets of Buckhead safer, whether that's investing in in, in more law enforcement, more training, um, whether it's more community investment, whatever that may be. I have yet to understand how splitting Buckhead from the city of Atlanta addresses the public safety issue that authors and supporters of the legislation say is the main underlying reason for their their support of the legislation. So again, I I think we have to separate those two and that there is a public safety concern that needs to be addressed. But again, when you then talk about splitting off from the city of Atlanta, um, not only does that not address or address the underlying issue, it also pops up half a dozen other questions that they have yet to answer. Well, Cody, um, we know that the Buckhead City movement uh, first began bubbling to the service, uh, surface during the tenure of Mayor he uh, Bottoms uh, and Mayor Bottoms and your former, well, your former boss in the, in the governor's office, uh, Governor Kemp, had a rocky relationship. Um, but since then, Mayor Dickens and Governor Kemp have really found a way to work together amicably. And it's made, and, and I think Dickens has made it clear that he's more than happy to cooperate in most ways with the efforts that the state also would like to see made to make Atlanta, like the rest of Georgia, a safer place. And I suspect that's one of the reasons, Cody, why Michelle Au says this probably doesn't have the legs it might have had some time ago. Yes, I, I think the mayor, um, the current mayor has done a really good job of um, making sure that his first foot forward was building these relationships. Um, because I think if you look at the new speaker, the new lieutenant governor, um, Governor Kemp, all those guys are, they understand the value um, and the importance of the city of Atlanta to the state as a whole. Um, I think there is always the um, the want to have a good working relationship. And I think the mayor has done a really good job of um, putting that first foot forward and saying, let's continue to work together. Let's have open dialogue, some family conversations. And I think that's been very productive so far. Well, uh, the uh, mayor, Mayor Dickens, was quoted on this the other day. He says, now that we've got the highest bond rating, the world's busiest airport, the highest graduation rate for APS ever, now you want to leave us? You can't unscramble this egg. This is together. You want to undo that and still get the benefit of being adjacent to the best city? I'm not going to let that happen. I think that's a really interesting quote. And by, by the way, Jim, you know, you talk about these salaries. And, you know, you can parse that two different ways. 
I assume Randy Robertson is sincere in his desire to see Buckhead as a separate city, but those salaries that are mentioned almost feel like, on one hand, they could be a poison pill, and on the other hand, perhaps are uh, intended uh, to uh, reward those who are fighting hardest for Buckhead cityhood and plan to run for those some of those offices. Yeah, and and of course those those high salaries need to be paid with something. Um, I guess maybe some taxes here, uh, which would be which would be an interesting uh, issue here. Uh, one thing I do want to, uh, Bill. I mean, we've we, I I think the, gov- the way the governor has talked about this, the way the House Speaker John Burns has talked about this, you, uh, uh, Michelle's right. I don't think this is going anywhere. I want to see how the Sen- Senate handles this, simply because. Bert Jones, who is now lieutenant governor and president of the Senate, uh, he was on the last effort. He was part of the last effort to uh, to pass a city of of uh, a city of Buckhead City. So I, I'd like to see I'd like to see how far this thing goes in the Senate. Well, he also Michelle during his campaign for lieutenant governor said he one of the things he was running on was giving uh, Buckhead uh, a possible independence from the city of Atlanta. So. We don't know where he stands. He says that he's not going to shut down the conversation if a senator brings it forward. Michelle, give us a last word on this, and then we can move on. It does seem that uh, Lieutenant Governor Jones has stepped back a little bit from that campaign, you know, attestation or promise, whatever you like to look at it. And we remember, of course, that with last session that the the LG at that time, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, was the one who effectively killed the bill in the Senate by sending it to a committee where it could not pass. But I, I do think that this issue of the salary being written into the bill is uh, it, it maybe brings some extra oxygen to the bill in terms of media attention because as it is so aberrant compared to other salaries, but not all attention is good attention. And I do think it, it calls into question what the motivations are behind bringing this bill in the first place. All right. Well, we'll watch to see if this develops uh, at all. Kevin Riley, uh, another bill back again uh, for third or fourth time, maybe even more than that, uh, sports betting. It it's really appears that this year, sports betting has a realistic chance of passing. The question is, if it passes as a part of the lottery, it only requires a majority vote. If there is a belief that it must be a constitutional amendment, it has a much higher bar, two-thirds of the body. Right, and I think they're trying to keep the bill uncomplicated. As we've talked about before, every year the bill gets complicated because people want horse racing and casinos and every other thing they can think about betting on. Um, Bill, I'm going to, if you'll permit me, go on a slight tangent here before others jump in on this bill. Um, I was in Ohio uh, for a couple days earlier this week, and... uh, they allow sports betting's new in Ohio, and and it hasn't been particularly well thought out in a lot of people's opinions. But an in- interesting story, really quickly, the University of Dayton basketball team lost a game by blowing like a seven point lead in the last two minutes a couple weeks ago, and the players, according to their coach and the school's athletic director, got threats and nasty emails and texts from gamblers who lost because they blew this lead in the last minute by turning it over and missing foul shots. They blame the players. And it's been a very public, difficult debate about, wow, you're exposing college kids to the sports betting thing and the pressure that it creates. And again, we haven't had that discussion in Georgia. And I just thought it was an interesting thing that I learned while I was there. Um, Michelle, I don't haven't seen the new version of the bill. And, and frankly, I don't know what previous bills have shown, but Am I is is there a prohibition against sports betting in uh, anything but professional sports, to the best of your knowledge, in the legislation that will be proposed? Not to the best of my knowledge, and I also haven't fully read through this bill yet, but I do think it will be an interesting conversation, particularly if they do parse it apart from the casino argument and the horse betting, because it is in some ways the easiest lift because there's no brick and mortar aspect to it. And frankly, um, on both sides of the aisle, there are many people who are interested in this issue, particularly if the revenues generated go to something like education, as has been proposed. Cody, um, Governor Kemp has for a long time held the line against gambling. Um, And we now know that Speaker John Burns has said uh, he's still open to the sports betting uh, legislation not so much casinos or horse racing, at least this 
session. And it does appear that the governor is more willing to listen to the will of the legislature this time around, yes? I think so. And Bill, just as a note of transparency, um, I'm doing work um, on behalf of some of the sports betting folks um, on the um, on the pro side. Um, so yeah, I think that um, the key here is one, over half the states already do this. Um, and two, it need if we're going to have it happen underground or on the black market, whatever you want to refer to it as, it needs to be regulated and, and done in a safe way to make sure that some of these pitfalls that maybe what Kevin was talking about and some of the other concerns are addressed in statute um, so that there are guardrails. And then to Michelle's point, I think that having it where um, the funds that are raised are going to education, um, we have a tried and true method through the Georgia lottery to make that happen, again, in a safe, secure way that has clear legal guardrails. Um, and I think that it is separate from the casino or the horse racing conversation. Um, you know, Patricia Murphy and the AJC um, recently had an op-ed um, that looked at an opinion that former Chief Justice Melton of the Georgia Supreme Court wrote about the sports betting legislation and that, in his opinion, um, you could pass a sports betting bill um, by itself and place it under the Georgia lottery in, on a simple majority vote, whereas a casino or horse racing would have to go more of the constitutional amendment route. Jim, just to close out this conversation, uh, uh, yes, uh, Melton believes it could be done by simple majority as an attachment, essentially, to the lottery. But no matter what, if that's the way the route that legislators take, it's going to be challenged in court almost immediately by the anti-gambling forces. So it, we could see a, a road ahead that will take some time to establish whether it will, in fact, win court approval if it's done by majority vote. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You can expect a, a consortium that involves uh, uh, Southern Baptists uh, or, or the Georgia, ba Georgia Baptist mission to, uh, to jump in on this on, on in, in a legal matter. Uh, but uh, just to, just as a, as I'm going to do a Kevin Riley aside here, uh, I, I tend to, I, 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 right now I'm, I'm doing a little bit of a lot of research uh, and, I came across not long ago, and I, I, I sent it to your people, uh, uh, Kevin, a, a July 1954 front page article on the Atlanta Constitution, where the newspaper sent two reporters into the stands uh, at Piedmont Park uh, to watch the Atlanta Crackers game. And to watch the gambling that was going on in there, where they had where they had where they had gamblers uh, doling out uh, uh, collecting dollar bills on on balls, on strikes, on hits, on walks, uh, and and noting the the the, the police officers uh, that were just standing by and just kind of watching it all. So it's 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 been this has been with us for a good while. <laughs> well, and of course, that is the argument that's being made by the pro sports betting uh, uh, legislators and uh, lobbyists out there who want to see it happen, and and um, many people out there in the public too, as well. Michelle, before we uh, get off legislative issues uh, and have to take a break, let's talk about um, your legislation right now. Uh, first of all, you have proposed a first time increase in the tobacco tax. In the state of Georgia, not surprising that as a doctor you would want to see that. Um, am, am I am I correct that Georgia now has the lowest tobacco tax in the nation, or close to it? It is very close to the lowest tobacco tax in the nation. I believe it's the second lowest. So just to give you a sense of how low we are, the national average for a pack of cigarettes is one dollar mm. ninety one cents for a pack of cigarettes. Georgia's is 37 cents, right? And we have not raised our state tobacco tax in about two decades. So it's about time to look at this issue for two reasons. The first reason, I think this is really the primary reason, is that in raising the state tobacco tax, what we've seen in other states is that it tends to disincentivize smoking, which is a harmful health behavior that is optional, right? So um, in being able especially to dissuade younger smokers who are more sensitive to price increases from smoking, we are able to bring down health care costs. We're able to um, decrease the burden of chronic health, uh, you know, illness in the state. And especially for younger smokers, you know, imagine if you're able to quit smoking at the age of 25 or choose to quit smoking because of the price, then you're able to gain decades, really, of improved life 
and quality of life outcomes that could really uh, pay dividends. So it's really uh, an investment and, in public health. And and what do we know about the kind of revenues? What's your what's your proposal? And the kind of revenues well, it would raise. Sure. I had originally had a version of this bill that would raise it up to the, the national average, which is up from 37 to $1.91. Um, in talking with some people, you know, we want to always balance the public health benefits with uh, what is doable in this environment, right? We work in, a, in an environment where we don't always get what we want. And uh, what we decided to do in partnering with some of my Republican colleagues is to uh, pose a more modest increase in the state tobacco tax up to what is more like the regional average. So we took all the neighboring states, dropped the highest and the lowest and averaged out the other four. And to that, we came up to a state tobacco tax up to a 57 cents, which is about 20 cents over where we are now. That seems like um, an easier lift for the first time in two decades, but it also will have a lot of these effects that we are aiming for in terms of disincentivizing a harmful health behavior and generating what probably is going to be on the order of about 90 million, maybe 100 million dollars once we include in the vaping tax increase that we also have as a separate standalone bill. Cody, how powerful is the tobacco lobby at, at the state capitol? I'm I'm not I'm not uh, c- clear on that myself. I suspect strong. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily um, say it's a factor of what the tobacco industry would like. Um, I would say it's more of um, you have a new speaker, a new lieutenant governor, and a governor that was just reelected, and raising any tax um, may not be the most popular on our side of the aisle. Michelle, well. I- I think there's a reason we waited for this year to to propose this tax increase. One, it, it is not an election year, right? And the second thing is when we talk about this bill, I would like people to stop thinking about it purely as a tax raise, right? But to think about um, the price we pay for cigarettes as a user's fee, right? This is the term that... Um, my colleague Ron Stevens, who is the primary sponsor of the bill, likes to use because this is a choice that we make to engage in a harmful and very costly health behavior, right? So it is it is something that um, people should consider, especially given, and this is an invisible cost that people don't even realize that we're already paying, right, is that the cost to every household in Georgia to pay for the chronic health expenses of people who choose to smoke in Georgia is $900 a year. Right. So this is money we're already paying. And maybe we don't know that and maybe we don't feel that because it doesn't like directly come out of our wallets. But um, this is a way to defray costs. Kevin, I went right to the question about lobbyists. uh, But I think Cody made a much clearer point, and that is Republicans don't like raising taxes under any circumstances or most circumstances. And coming out of an election campaign, uh, I, I can understand why Republicans might look at this uh, and wonder whether it's the smartest uh, uh, move right now, although I know Michelle would disagree with that. Kevin? Well, uh, I mean, I I think on Michelle's side, uh, smokers aren't popular people generally anymore. Um, So she's got that going for the bill. But I bet you Cody knows how those unpopular people vote. And uh, I don't know if he'll tell us, but I bet there's something to that. (laughs) Cody? I think you've got to get to a break, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle, I am going to give you a last word on this. I'm just going to close it out by saying that the primary sponsors of this bill are Republicans, right? So that is a powerful um, sort of uh, support that we are able to have behind this bill. This is long overdue. And the second thing I'll point out is the primary sponsors of this bill all have backgrounds working in healthcare. We have a pharmacist, two physicians, and a dentist. So okay. I think that speaks for itself. I, I've got to get to a break. Uh, by the way, I'd like to point out that it was Kevin Riley, R-E-L-E-Y, not me, who said smokers are not very popular these days. So all of you out there who are smokers, direct your concerns to Kevin, not to me. We're uh, going to take a break right now, back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
Kevin Riley, Jim Galloway, Rochelle, Michelle Au, representative from Johns Creek, which I did not say at the start of the show, and Cody Hall join us today. All right, Cody, uh, yesterday in our, the little team meeting that uh, Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, and I have after the show, we said, gee, we have Michelle Au coming on. We're glad she'll be here. She's a Democrat. We always like to balance it off with the Republican. And the Republicans we've invited for one reason or another haven't been available. So I said, well, let's call Cody Hall. And you jumped in uh, very, uh, uh, very happily. And you said at the time, I'm going to have some news for you as well. So I am delighted that by coincidence, <laughs> we get you on the day that you are rolling out in the biggest way yet, this new national pack that Brian Kemp has established, hardworking Americans. Um, you've, you've, you're going to be the executive director of this organization and you brought in two major seasoned fundraisers. Um, so, Cody, I'd love for you to take a couple minutes to talk about this. But, of course, the biggest question is, to what end does the governor want to establish a national PAC? What does he see as his new role in national politics? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think the governor has been able to do a series of very unique things over the last four years. Um, one, he's established his own brand within the Republican Party that is separate from Donald Trump. Um, but he has also um, notched two very big wins in a general election against a better funded, a better known uh, Democratic opponent. Um, so I think how he was able to do that um, creates a blueprint for Republicans across the country as we move forward um, into the 24, the 26 cycles of how do you balance um, being a conservative, um, but also winning tough general elections in environments that may not be necessarily friendly to Republicans. And I think he has created that blueprint. So what our goal in hardworking Americans is to do is to go out and find other federal candidates that are similar in nature to um, maybe the governor's ideological um, kind of blueprint or, or um, how they approach politics, their focus on on specific issues and, and help them, um, whether it's in primaries or in general elections, um, win some of these tough races. Because I think as a Republican, when you look forward, it it's going to be... Um, not necessarily a a black or white proposition of how to move forward in the age of Trump, because he's still ever present in our party. But how do you do that in an effective way and actually win elections? Because if you don't win, you don't get to govern. Kevin? Uh, Cody, this is uh, something I've been dying to ask you. Um, that hardworking terminology, just, um, you know, <laughs> the governor used it over and over again. Um, you can claim it as your idea uh, on the show here if you want, but if you do, I want you to say why that term? What is it? What's the strategy behind saying that term so much that um, I've started, you know, using it on my children? Yeah, we've <laughs> teased about that. We've teased about that on this show frequently. We've started to count the number of times the governor talked about hardworking Georgians. But Cody, go ahead. Yeah, so I think it's it's part of um, who the governor is. Um, he's a construction guy from Athens. Um, he started his own uh, business with a pickup truck and a shovel. Um, and he, as a person, when you meet him, when you talk to him, he's a blue collar guy. So I think um, in using the terminology hardworking, I think it also spans across ideological or demographic boundaries of there are people from all walks of life, regardless of how you vote or where you live or your ideological preferences, that you get up every morning trying to put food on the table for your families. And I think what we saw in the 22 cycle in particular is that the concerns of voters were so focused on jobs and the economy, the cost of living, of inflation, that um, we were able to win over voters that may not agree with the governor on every issue, but they knew what his focus was and they related to him um, in terms of how he spoke about making sure that they could afford groceries, making sure that they could afford their rent, their car payment. Um, because, look, as a small business guy, he went through that in the Great Recession as a construction um, a businessman and understands those Friday nights that a lot of Georgians were feeling where they couldn't pay their bills. So I think in a broader way, it's it's being authentic to who the governor is, his brand, but it's also about appealing to a broader range of, of Georgians that may not um, be as ready to recept a quote-unquote Republican message. Jim? 
Uh, yeah, if you if you want to get speci- specific, if you, if you Google uh, the term Brian Kemp and the word hardworking, you come up with some three hundred and sixty thousand hits. Uh, so this is this is a this is a a semantic relationship that's that's very deliberate on 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 the governor's part. And, and and to be fair, it's not it's 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 not it's it's not only Kemp who who, who uses it. Uh, it's it's very big in on uh, on the European continent. Uh, uh, Ardverkend is the uh, is the Dutch phrase for it. Uh, but, but I, I guess my question uh, for Cody Cody would be, who is not a hardworking Georgian or a hardworking American? I mean, I'm retired. Uh, I don't have a, you know, I, I, uh, my, my income is, 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 is pretty, pretty much set. Am am I a hardworking American? I think you would be Jim. And, and and I think that if I don't think by using a terminology, the governor is, or we are um, excluding anyone from that, um, you yourself define whether you're hardworking, you know, that whether you're providing for your family or you're retired or you're a student in college, um, all of that includes some sort of of activity that you do as an individual that um, that furthers your way of life. And, and I think that that's, again, in a broader um, kind of conversation, it's about um, in this day and age, how you relate to people is is probably more important than the policy positions that you're pushing. And I think that what we have tried to do, because Georgia is a changing state, it's no longer a state where you can put an R beside your name and win statewide, that we have to be very intentional about how we relate to people and and show that um, as as Republicans, we not only think our policies are good for people, but we also understand you. We we sympathize with, with what people are going through. And I think that's that's the goal, at least. Michelle? You know, I think that everyone, both in this state and in this country, is watching Governor Kemp and seeing what he's going to do next. Obviously, his national profile has raised quite a bit. And I just want to note that, you know, we are in February right now. Governor Kemp was just sworn in for a second term less than a month ago, right? So I do hope that in this uh, effort to raise and burnish his national profile, he remembers, first of all, to continue to do the work for Georgia that he ran on, right? Because um, he did run a campaign where he made frequent swipes and dings at his opponent, Stacey Abrams, for caring more about her national profile and image than she cared about Georgia. So I, I do hope that in progressing with this PAC and in the work he's doing in DC and beyond, that he will continue to focus on Georgia as the key part of his work. Um, let me jump back in. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, for a couple of points here, uh, and Cody, I'll give you a chance if you want to respond to Michelle in a second. But I think the reason there's all this attention from Jim and Kevin uh, about uh, the, the term hardworking is that uh, Democrats, uh, opponents of yours in the past, and me, me, meaning your relationship with Governor Kemp, of course, um, have said it's drawing a line. It's the people who are out there with jobs and uh, perhaps have families and they're, they're living in communities where they're doing fairly well, at least, as opposed to those who are on Medicaid, on welfare. Um, and, and so that's, I think, one of the reasons that this continues to come up, Cody, is this sense of does it draw a line or not? And you are very good at messaging. You always have been. But the question is, can people interpret that as drawing a line between those the needy and the non-needy? I can say that we have like that has never been an intent behind our message. So um, over the last four years, people have made a lot of assumptions about um, motives that the governor may or may not have had in using whatever terminology. Um, I can tell you, having worked with him for four years, it feels like a lot longer than that, but um, that he is somebody (laughs) who respects each and every individual for whatever circumstance of life they find themselves in. And um, what makes him tick every morning is getting up and making sure that he's doing what he can to put the people that elected him first. And that means um, I think he probably works longer hours than anybody I know. um, And he's going to continue to do that as governor. 
Okay, uh, we got to get to a break, but I want to keep talking about this for at least a few more minutes when we come back. And of course, the big question is, uh, Brian Kemp is what, 59 years old? He's just won a resounding victory for his second term. Uh, he's launched hardworking Americans. Just what office will he seek next? I think we should get Tody Hall to tell us that after these messages. <laughs> At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. By the way, um, many of you out there by now know that the Atlanta Police Department released their body cam image of the officers from APD who were uh, part of the clearing of the forest the day of the unfortunate uh, shooting incident in which an activist was killed and Atlanta, a uh, state trooper seriously wounded. We're, we're not talking about it on the show today because we don't know enough. The, the video so far we're trying to look it over, as most news organizations are, to see if it really illuminates in any way what happened. And as matters develop, uh, to, certainly on tomorrow's show, we'll get into it um, more deeply. So, um, Kevin, l- let me turn to you on this question that I propose we ask C- Cody about. Um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, the other night, giving the Republican response to the State of the Union, uh, really took a lot of criticism, not just from Democrats, but from some Republicans who say that rather than presenting a message about how Republicans can solve problems that everyday people are facing, turned it into a right-wing MAGA uh, polemic about uh, critical race theory, about the wokeness of Democrats. And, and Kevin, you've got to think that Brian Kemp whether you wanted him to be the governor for a second term or not, has a more basic message, and Cody laid it out just a little while ago, than than Sarah uh, Huckabee Sanders was able to give the other night. Yes, Kevin? Yeah, I would agree, and I I do think uh, he's getting some national attention. I mentioned my trip to Ohio this week, and I had a couple friends and people I talked to who asked me about it. So, um, I do think uh, what he has done, and you know, Bill, I think we talked about this way before the campaign, um, that if he beat Stacey Abrams again, if he survived Trump, wouldn't he become a national figure? And uh, it's clear this morning that, in fact, uh, he has. And uh, I I don't think we're going to get Cody to answer the question about what he wants to do next, but I hope he will. But I'm not optimistic. But it does seem that what he is planning to do is make sure that he makes lots of friends by raising money and helping them with their campaigns so that whatever he decides to do next, he'll have a lot of support. So, Cody, uh, there's a Senate race uh, uh, that uh, he could get involved with. Uh, There's talk that he could be on the ticket uh, in the next uh, presidential uh, uh, race, uh, you, you're not going to give us a specific answer, but is it fair to say that Brian Kemp does see a future in public office beyond the governor's mansion? Yeah, and the honest answer is I don't know. Um, but I think what I can say is how the governor has previously approached these choices he's made in his political life, which if you ask him, he will say that the reason he ran for state Senate in 2002 was because he was a small business guy frustrated with government. And he ran for state Senate, beat a Democratic incumbent. Um, He ran for governor because, again, he felt like from the position of governor, he could um, affect real change in how state government operated. Obviously, we didn't know what we would run into the first four years. But um, so I think as he looks forward, as the family looks forward, um, those are going to be the things that are top of mind. One, um, is he somebody that can win whatever race he gets into? Um, And if so, is he the best positioned to do that out of who could potentially run? Um, But look, I also think that it's possible that he goes back to Athens and he does whatever may come to his mind after he is no longer governor. But um, I think he has earned the right 
to make a decision based on his own timeline. Um, and that's what he's going to do. And um, we'll stand there to support him however we can. Jim? Uh, yeah, Cody, and this is uh, whether he decides to run for U.S. Senate in 2026 or uh, is, is drawn into a Republican ticket uh, in, in a presidential campaign. I, I think one thing we can, you, you tell me if I'm wrong here, one thing we can say for sure is he is not trying to model himself after someone like Ron DeSantis, who's kind of been, uh, kind of held himself out as as the, the Trump alternative. Uh, and, and of course, I mean, we, we saw um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, uh, give the reply to the, the the State of the Union address with a very very harsh, uh, pessimistic view of, of of the U.S. That uh, Governor Kemp seems to be charting a a a, 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 a very different course here. Uh, that's that's that that's not based on culture wars. Am I am I am I reading that wrong? You know, he, he was asked Jim by Justin Farmer with W be when he was over in, in Davos, um, Justin asked him, well, you know, you're, you're kind of representing the more moderate lane of the Republican Party. And the governor almost stopped him in the middle of the question and said, oh, look, you know, I'm a conservative. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm just not mad about it. So I think that's that's authentic to who he is. Um, Brian Kemp is not Ron DeSantis. Brian Kemp is not um, Donald Trump, but he's but Brian Kemp is also not Liz Cheney or Mitt Romney. Um, and I think that that's that's what makes him generally unique in this political environment is that he's not afraid to be who he is um, and kind of let the chips fall where they may. You can go through a whole bunch of, de of decisions he made in the first four years that kind of bear that out. But I think you're right. Um, but at the end of the day, he is somebody who makes these kind of big decisions based on his gut instinct and whether or not in his estimation um, he can be successful, because at the end of the day. Um, in order to affect real change and to implement policies that we think as Republicans are good for people, the people that elect us, you have to be in the game. So, so Michelle, I think Justin Farmer made a mistake that uh, Democrats might argue many voters did uh, last year. They thought that Brian Kemp and by that way, Brad Raffensperger were moderates because they were not afraid to take on uh, Donald Trump. But as we talked about on this show over and over again, there's no question Brian Kemp is a very, very conservative. All you have to do is look at some of the bills that he's passed, including the heartbeat abortion law, one of the most restrictive in the country, uh, proliferate in, in his uh, uh, liberal app policies about, about guns. So there should be no mistaking the fact, and he admits it himself, Governor Kemp is a conservative. And if people want that, more power to them, but don't mistake him as a moderate. All right, I'm glad you went back to that bill because that did snag at me too. This um, perception that that Brian Kemp is uh, a moderate Republican, when by his own admission and by his own identity, he is one of the most conservative governors that the Georgia's ever had. Right, so it'll be interesting in going forward and seeing how he builds out this national brand, um, where that leads him. But um, but I don't think that we can uh, call someone moderate simply because they did their job in obeying the rule of law. Um, here's another interesting aspect of this, I think, uh, Kevin. Um, th there's all this talk, and, and maybe Cody wants to respond to this, but there's this talk, would uh, Kemp want to run for the U.S. Senate in, in uh, the uh, John Ossoff seat? Um, and I've got to say that chief executives, which is what governors are, the guys who run the business of the state, rarely are happy putting themselves in the United States Senate where they find themselves as one of only 100 people and they don't have a whole lot of power at all. That was certainly uh, the way that Zell Miller felt when he gave uh, left the governor's office and ran for Senate. He hated every minute that he was up there. It's It strikes me as uh, if you've been a chief executive running for Senate, isn't really that uh, 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 good an opportunity as it sounds like. Well, yeah, and think about uh, think about it this way. Uh, Brian Kemp stood up not so long ago and said, we're going to make our state the, I think, electric mobility 
capital of the world, center of the universe. I forget exactly what terminology he said. Imagine that being able to say something like that as a message, as opposed to, I'm going to go to Washington and try to pass even one bill in my first six years, you know? <laughs> I think the one thing... Go, go ahead. Yeah. I think the one thing to remember um, is that the governor started his career in the state Senate. Um, I think anyone that meets him, um, whether they disagree with him politically, find him to be an amicable guy that um, appreciates kind of a a team approach to things. But look, I don't want to beat a dead horse here. I, I think that um, whatever he decides to do, it's going to be based on his timeline and, and whether he he believes and the family believes that they can not only win the election, but also deliver results in whatever they end up doing. Jim, we're close out of time. One last comment or question from you. Uh, uh, very quickly, uh, Bill, you mentioned Zell Miller. He didn't like it up in the U.S. Senate. Herman Talmadge, on the other hand, he liked it fine. He spent he spent a, a <laughs> okay. good 20 years there. <laughs> yeah, it was another time. I think the Senate was a different body than the, than the gridlock body it is today. Michelle, I'll very, very quickly, is there anything, whether you support him as a candidate for re-election or not. Is there anything that Joe Biden can do to raise his approval ratings in this state, in your opinion? He's way underwater, and you've got about 30 seconds to give us an idea. Here's my 30 seconds. I think a lot of the things that Governor Kemp has gotten credit for in terms of, uh, you know, financial, uh, you know, tax breaks and so forth, tax you know, raises for teachers and law enforcement, these sorts of things actually came from the Biden administration. So I think that one of the things that President Biden can do is just to remind people that the things that they enjoy that they think came from Governor Kemp actually came from the federal government. All right. Michelle Au, Jim Galloway, Kevin Riley, and Cody Hall really enjoyed having you on uh, the show today. Cody, thanks for helping us understand a little better what's next for your boss, Governor Brian Kemp. We're back again with a brand new show tomorrow. Natalie Mendenhall's wearing a Wellesley sweatshirt for Michelle Au. We'll see you all tomorrow. In the meantime, take care and stay healthy.